Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, Jake is gone. <laughs> Kenley's been at camp all week, and so y'all are stuck with me. And thankfully, I got up here, I saw no one running for the exits. So that's a really good start to our time together this morning. I feel almost like I should have to introduce myself to you. It's been so long since we've been here. We've been gone various places, been on vacation in New Mexico. And I'll tell you, we... we very nearly didn't come back. We almost decided to just stay there and, and live in New Mexico for the rest of our lives. But we came back and we're glad. Uh, last, we were at the Red River Family Encampment uh, in Red River, New Mexico. And if you know anything about that, what it is, it's, it starts on Friday night with the singing and there's a bunch of preachers preaching. There's singing, there's Bible classes. Uh, it, it's a town of about four or 500 normal, regular residents there. And they're overrun every summer for about a week with about 1,500 to 2,000 Christians that are there for no other reason than to fellowship and study God's word and sing and praise him. And it was incredible. It was awesome. If you ever get the chance to go, I would strongly encourage you to go. And they had some phenomenal preachers there, some, some of the best preachers that our brotherhood has. And we're going one night, we're, we're setting up our chairs there in the tent, Mason sits down, he says, Dad, is Mr. Jake going to preach? I said, no, buddy, we're going to listen to some other guys preach. I don't like listening to anybody but Mr. Jake. <laughs> and so this morning, we were talking about me preaching. He said, Dad, Mr. Jake's not going to preach? He said, no, I don't like listening to anybody but Mr. Jake. <laughs> so, you know, Jesus said the man's enemies would be those of his own household. I guess he was right. You know, your kids don't even want to listen to you. They want to listen to Mr. Jake. Jake's gone. They're on a trip. They'll be back, I, I think, uh, maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, something like that. Uh, if you don't know it, we're very, very blessed that Jake uh, is our minister, very blessed the talent that he has, that his whole family has. Uh, we're also very blessed with, with Kenley and Lacey and all the talent and the willingness they have to serve. And then y'all are blessed, I guess, that I'm, I'm willing to get up here when they can't. Uh, Somebody's got to do it. Y'all drew the short straw. Here we are. Tom sang that song for us this morning, Jesus Loves Me. I texted him uh, actually on our way home from Mexico the other night and asked him if he'd sing that as our song before the sermon this morning. If you looked in the, the family news today, you saw that is our sermon topic. That is the title of our sermon, Jesus Loves Me. And I love that song that we sing, and, and, and we've all sang it since we were Little bitty, our, our earliest memories probably, that was the first song you learned probably in Bible class was Jesus Loves Me. And I can tell you right now, I've got a nearly three-year-old sitting back there on the back row that I can ask him, hey, buddy, does Jesus love you? And he can't, he can't pick up his Bible and turn to a passage and tell me and show me why Jesus, he, he can't expound on the, the thought or the idea that Jesus loves him, but he can tell you that Jesus loves him because the Bible tells him so. I believe it was Karl Barth, a very, very famous German theologian. Somebody asked him one day, you know, out, out of all your years of study of the Bible, all of your years of study of theology, what, what would you say is the most crucial thing you've ever learned, the most crucial uh, idea that you've ever discovered? And his response very simply was, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, that picture you see in front of you, that's a picture of the Warner House on Constitution Island in West Point, New York. The reason that picture is up there, a lady by the name of Anna B. Warner wrote the words, Jesus Loves Me, in 1862. 
She didn't write it for any particular reason except she thought it put together a nice message. That, that, that was her only thought. She just wrote this little poem for herself, thought maybe she might publish in the local newspaper something to that effect, and maybe it might help somebody to, to further grasp the gospel message, to further grasp the enormity of God's love, and that was really the only thought that she had. About three years later, a guy by the name of William Bradbury took those words and he put them to music. And as they say, the rest is history. We now have that beloved children's song that we all know and we all love. Miss Warner and her sister spent many years teaching Bible classes to the cadets at the United States Military Academy at West Point. You can see that uh, in the foreground of this picture. Across the river there, what you see is Constitution Island where the Warner House was. Cadets would row over there regularly for meals because that's the only legitimate reason they could leave the leave. Uh, the academy. So they would be offered a meal and then the Warner sisters would conduct a Bible study with them as well. They did that every Sunday and other days as well, but every Sunday for about 40 years. And to date, the Warner sisters are the only civilians that are buried on, on base there on campus at the United States Military Academy because of the great contribution they made there. And though they made a great contribution to the Military Academy and their years of service to those cadets there, I would venture to say that short of the Apostle Paul, no one else has made a greater gift, has had a greater gift to offer the cause of Christianity than Miss Warner in those words she wrote that we sang just a moment ago because I'm firmly convinced we cannot, no matter how much time we were spent on, we cannot spend enough time talking about God's love for us, about the love that Jesus Christ, his son, has for you and has for me. There's no possible way we could ever cover everything there is to say about that topic and do it justice if, if we were to talk about nothing else from now till Jesus were to come back. We still would not be able to spend enough time dwelling on that topic. And I firmly believe the truth of this statement if you read all through scripture, from Genesis 1 all the way to the concluding verses of the 22nd chapter of John's Revelation, the Bible, page after page after page, is about nothing but God's love for sinful man. Now that love manifests itself in different ways and at different times, but from the very beginning of this book to the very end of this book, it is simply about God's love for us. And I think we need to know this, we need to understand this, because it's the love of God for us that gives us the opportunity to one day inherit eternal life. Now, the Bible makes it very clear for us. It, it, it minces no words, it pulls no punches. The Bible makes it very clear for us that you and I are sinners. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. He, he doesn't say a few, he doesn't say some, he doesn't say most. He says all. That means you, that means me, that means everybody. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John writes those same words in his first epistle there uh, in chapter 1, starting in verse 7. Turn there with me if you would. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 7. John makes the exact same point. He, he draws it out a little bit more than Paul does. But John makes the exact same point here that Paul makes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. First John 1 Starting in verse 7, John says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Both John and Paul make the point very, very clearly that we are sinners. Every last one of us, no matter how good you may think you are, no matter how good I may think I am, and I think I'm pretty good sometimes, we are all sinners. Now, so far, I don't think I've told you anything new. You know that, right? Somewhere down deep inside, somewhere down in our hearts, somewhere in the back of our mind, we know, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know that. You're not telling me anything new so far. But I don't think we understand the magnitude of that statement, the magnitude of saying, I am a sinner. So I, I, I don't do bad things. I don't commit bad sins. I don't commit big sins. I may fudge on that form I send out to the IRS every April, but that's not that big of a deal. I might lie occasionally. I might tell some really, really juicy gossip from time to time. Maybe, and we talked about this, alluded to this some in our Bible class time this morning, maybe I'm just jealous of someone for any number of reasons, but, th but that's it. That's all it is. That, that's not a big deal. It, it, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really make that much difference. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't separate sin in a different strata into, into different classifications and say these are big sins that matter and these are little sins that aren't a big deal. The Bible tells us that there is sin and that sin will separate us from God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, wages, very simply, that's what we've earned, right? You, you go out and do some work, you're expecting to be paid for that. You're expecting your wages. You're expecting what you earned for that activity, digging a ditch, chopping down trees, whatever it may be. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, what he says is when you receive payment for your sin, the payment you have earned is death. Now think about those things we talked about, those, those little things we talked about, we mentioned just a moment ago, those little sins. If you look in Galatians chapter 5 sometimes, sometime Paul gives a laundry list of different sins there. Among those sins, I want you to listen very carefully to some of those things he lists. He lists enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Now, that's not all he lists there. But I'd be willing to bet right now that all eight of those I just listed catches every last one of us somehow, some way. May catch some of us more than once, right? Now, Paul goes on after he concludes that list. In verse 21, he says, those who do such things will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, now, all of a sudden, this is a little bit more serious, isn't it? I'm a sinner. That's what Paul and John have told us. The wages of sin is death. Paul lists all these things here, some of them that we're probably all guilty of. And he says, those that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, as we think about all that, that should again make those words in Romans 6 and verse 23 especially chilling for us. The wages of sin is death. I've told y'all before, you've heard me say it in Bible classes many times before, the one, one thing you're never going to hear me say is I want what I deserve. Because I don't want that. I know what I deserve. I know what you deserve too. And what the Bible tells us very clearly is what you deserve and what I deserve very simply is death. That we deserve, we have earned an eternal separation from God. Now the fact that you're here this morning indicates to me that that's not an outcome you want. If it was, I'm assuming you'd have found someplace else to be this morning. Maybe it's home in bed, maybe it's on the golf course, fishing, whatever. But you'd have found someplace else to be if that was what you wanted to happen. And if we stop right here, it's, it's been kind of a downer this morning so far, hasn't it? If we leave everything with you and our sinners worthy of death, worthy of separation from God, this would be a terrible morning. If God had left things at that, this would be a terrible life, would it not? Now the great news is we're not going to leave it here as you and I are worthy of sin and death just as God did not leave us sitting there simply waiting for sin and death and separation from him. Because what we see is from the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve eat that forbidden fruit, from that point all the way forward, as I mentioned a moment ago, we see a story of God's love for us. We see from Genesis chapter 3 all the way forward, we see God doing everything in his will, everything in his power to ensure that you and I do not spend eternity separated from him. We see God working tirelessly to save us from sin, working tirelessly to redeem us. And it's because of that we can read through the pages of the Old Testament. We can see those wonderful messianic psalms telling us of the Christ that's going to come. It's because of that we can look back to those prophecies of the Old Testament and see all of those prophecies, all of those foretellings of the Messiah that is going to come and deliver God's people. It's because of that love that we have. It's because of that love that God has for us that we have that wonderful golden text, the Bible, in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves us. And he loves us so much, he does not want us to be separated from him for all eternity. That's why Jesus very quickly, very succinctly would state his mission statement, if you will, in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, left to our own devices, left on our own, left to our own power, our own capabilities, you and I are destined for death. Jesus Christ came to this earth to save us from that death. Now the Hebrew writer would write in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 and say there has to be a blood sacrifice to take away sins. Just a few verses later in what we call chapter 10 and verse 4, that same book of Hebrews, we're told that it is impossible. Can't be done. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what's supposed to happen now? We, we can't offer enough bulls. We can't offer enough goats 
We can't offer enough of anything to take away our sins. But we, there has to be. There has to be a blood sacrifice for those sins. We know, of course, that was Jesus. Jesus descended from heaven on high. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect, a sinless life. He endured the pain, the shame, the suffering of the cross. Paul tells in the opening verses of Philippians, the second chapter, and tells us that Jesus Christ, he made himself lower than the angels. He took on the form of a servant to come to this earth. If you look at this picture, what you're looking at, that's the city of Jerusalem. That's looking across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. This picture is taken from what we call today the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you look at the very top of the picture, more or less toward the center, you can see a couple of what are now walled off city gates. All indications are this picture was taken from the same place, roughly, where our Savior prayed the night before he was crucified. And what I want you to understand, he's up on this hill, he's overlooking the city. He could see those city walls, those city gates where that mob came to arrest him. Remember, it's nighttime. They've got torches guiding them through the darkness. No doubt as he's kneeling there in prayer to the Father, he can see those torches slowly proceeding to him. He's praying not once, not twice, Three separate times he prays there. As he's watching that mob come to arrest him, he knows he is hours away from the worst pain and agony and suffering that any human being should have to endure. He prays those three times, Father, let this cup pass from me. Father, don't make me do this. Find another way. Surely there's another way to save lost mankind. Don't make me go to the cross. But then you remember his next words. He says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to, to visualize this. Visualize this picture. Visualize that right there. Visualize what Jesus is seeing. He's praying there in the garden. The sweat is great drops of blood falling from his head. He's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. See Jesus as he rises from prayer. Judas comes and places a kiss upon his cheek to betray him into the hands of that mob. Same as that mob takes him captive. See him as he goes to the house of Annas and the house of Caiaphas to be mocked and ridiculed. See him as the Roman soldiers whip him and beat him. See him as he is taken from Pilate Herod, and then back to Pilate once again. See him as he takes that heavy, heavy cross and walks through those dusty, dirty streets of Jerusalem. See him as he is weakened from the loss of blood, the lack of sleep, the exhaustion. See him as he falls beneath that cross. See him now as they've taken him to Golgotha's hill. They've laid him down. They've taken that cross piece. 
See him as he lays there in his weakened state, the sinless, the spotless, the only begotten Son of God, letting those Roman soldiers <laughs> pound those spikes into his hands and into his feet. See him now on that cross. See him with that crown of thorns on his head. See him as he turns to his side and endures the taunts of the thief on the cross. You saved others. Why can you not save yourself? See him as he hangs there on that cross, suffering in pain, in torment, in agony. Hear his cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See him hanging on that cross. Until he cries out, it is finished. And understand this. This man truly was the son of God. At any point in time, at any point during all of this, he could have come down off of that cross. He could have walked off Golgotha's hill. And Rome and all of her legions, all of her armies, all of her emperors, all of her wealth could have done not one thing about it. And he didn't do it. Why? Why would he willingly go through all of that? He did it because there was no other way. He did it so that you and so that I would not die but would have eternal life. He did it because he loved us. His blood had to be shed so that you and I could have the remission of sins. He did as the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 9 and verse 12 to secure for us an eternal redemption. He did it to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as the writer tells us in chapter 9 verse 26 of Hebrews. Turn to Romans chapter 5 with me. Paul makes it crystal clear for us, leaves no doubt here exactly why Jesus did all of this. Start in verse 6 with me of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But notice this, notice verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ didn't die for us because of how righteous we are. He didn't lay down his life because of how godly we are. He didn't lay down his life on that cross because you and I were worthy of that sacrifice, because we deserved that sacrifice. He did it even though we weren't worthy, even though we didn't deserve it. He did it because he loved us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and verse 7 tells us that it was Christ's shed blood that gives us redemption. Chapter 2 and verse 13 of that same letter to the church at Ephesus, he said that the blood of Christ was shed to bring us near to God. He tells the Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, the blood of Christ was shed to make peace. So we read a moment ago from 1 John 1 and verse 7, his blood was shed to cleanse us from all sin. 
John writes in his Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 and tells us that Christ's blood was shed to free us, to free us, to set us free from our sins. As we look at all of that, we think of all that, I think it's a wonderful message to hear. For us to know that in spite of all of our faults, all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, that the redemption we need God has provided for us. And for no other reason than the fact that he loves us. Now we've talked already about Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. But I want you to look at the second half of that verse too. So the rest of that verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved from death to eternal life by Jesus Christ. Eternal life is found only, only in Jesus Christ. And that's still not the whole story. Because you see, you and I, we aren't just saved from death and we get to go on our merry way at that point. We aren't saved from death. We aren't saved from hell so that we can continue to go on and live a life that suits us. When we avail ourselves of that free gift of eternal life, I want you to understand this very clearly. We are still going to die. And I'm not talking about the death that signals the end of life here on this earth. I'm talking about the death to self that must occur if we're going to be a follower of Jesus. Because if I'm going to take advantage of that free gift of eternal life, if I'm going to be in a right relationship with God, then that means he is my number one priority. Everything in my life, everything that I do, I do to love and to serve him. And that means that my life revolves entirely around doing the will of Jesus. And that means I'm going to put off to the side. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to get rid of anything and everything in my life that hinders me from serving Jesus Christ faithfully. If I have friends and family that are going to be a stumbling block to me, they're going to hinder me from serving Jesus, they're going to hinder me from devoting myself to Jesus, then I need to distance myself from them. If I have hobbies that are keeping me away from Jesus, I need to find new hobbies. If my desires for the reward of this world are keeping me from Jesus, then I'm not really following Jesus. That means if I'm focused on making plenty of money rather than Jesus, I'm not serving Jesus. If I'm more worried about the academic or athletic endeavors of my kids than I am about whether they have a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus, then I'm not faithfully serving him. We know this song, I think, probably. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you that. You have to listen to me talk. You should have to listen to me sing all on the same day. But the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice the next part of this. He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's talking about dying to self. He's talking about death to self. His life no longer belongs to him. When that death happened, when he died to himself, his life now belongs to Jesus. How amazing would our world be if we all really and truly lived that out every day? 
How wonderful would our world be if every one of us as Christians, we took that same stand that Paul said, Paul did. This life isn't mine. This life belongs to Jesus. And we faithfully and committedly and devotedly every single day were about nothing but doing the will of God. The problem is for too many of us, maybe for all of us in some way, shape, form, or fashion, we don't want to be a follower of Jesus when it, it's easy, when it's convenient, when it fits into our schedule, when it fits into what we want to do. We, we only want to do it when it's convenient for us. For far too many Christians, they think they're on a cruise ship. Have you ever been on a cruise ship? What does everything on that cruise ship revolve around? It revolves around you and what you want to do, right? You're not working. You're not investing in it. You're just there to show up, to have a good time. That's all you're invested in on that cruise ship. And for far too many Christians, we want to think of the church like a cruise ship. It's about me. What can be done for me? What can be done to serve me? What can be done to gratify me? How can I be catered to? All I need to do is get in the boat, get on the boat, and my every whim will be satisfied. That kind of Christianity, that's not about dying to self. That's a Christianity that is simply 100% about self. And so what we must realize, we're not on a cruise ship, folks. Regardless of what you might think, that is not what Christianity is. This, this is what Christianity is. Now, if you, you can't tell the difference, that's a battleship. That's not a cruise ship. The, the, the guns that are firing rounds right now probably is a pretty good indication. That's not a cruise ship you really want to be on necessarily. I've got a news flash for you today. We are in a war. We're not on some leisurely cruise through the Caribbean. We are in an all-out war day after day after day. And that's what it should look like. It's not a cruise ship. It's a battleship where everybody's got a job to do. Everybody's got a station to man. Everybody has something to do to go to war every day with the forces of evil in this world. What's the mission of the church? It's to bring lost souls to Jesus Christ, right? It's what Jesus tells his followers there. The, the last verses we have in Matthew's gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To bring souls out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. I'm going to tell you very clearly this morning, for us to do that, for us to do what God has called us to do, for us to be what God has called us to be, requires us to stop acting like we're on vacation and instead go to war with evil in this world. Now, I want you to understand, so if you get nothing else out of our time together this morning, I want you to, to understand this right here. You and I are sinners destined for death, destined for eternal destruction, eternal separation from God, destined for hell if left to our own devices. God loves us so much that he said, no, I don't want that. That outcome is unacceptable to me. I'm going to send my son to die for all of mankind because I love them so much. That level of sacrifice 
the level of sacrifice that would cause the only begotten Son of God to die for you, to die for me, demands an unparalleled level of commitment. We are either all in, fully invested, fully committed, fully sold out for Jesus Christ, or we're not really following him at all. There's, there's, no, there's no middle ground. You're either all in or you're not in at all. That's the only two options that there are. Now, Paul mentioned there in Romans 6 and verse 23, the free gift of God. Wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. How can I, how can I take hold of that free gift? How can I make sure that I'm taking advantage of that free gift that God offers to us? Now, thankfully, God's word tells us we're told we have to repent of sin. That, that doesn't just mean saying I'm sorry. That means I'm going to distance myself from those sins. I'm going to turn. I'm going to walk away from them. I'm not going to return back to them ever again. Paul tells in Romans chapter 10, we must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must be willing, again, as Paul talks about Galatians 2 and verse 20, we must be willing to give up our life to live the life that Christ wants. And then we must be buried in the waters of baptism. We have our sins washed away. We're raised up to walk in newness of life. Now I can look out over this crowd. I know most of you have done that, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. If you haven't done that this morning, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And if you haven't, I beg with you and plead with you to do that. And maybe you've done that, but you haven't really, you haven't really died to self. You haven't really been willing to lay your life down to Fulfill the life that Christ wants you to lead. You haven't been that faithful servant, that faithful warrior that God wants you to be. You can change that and fix that this morning too. Maybe, maybe you simply have cares, you have worries, you have concerns in your life, and you need us to pray for you. I'll tell you one thing, this is a, this is a church that knows how to pray. And we would love to, to love on you, whatever your needs are this morning. We want to love on you. We want to pray for you. And we want to help you have that right relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come and do that now as we stand and as we sing.